0: Hi everyone, today's February 23rd, 2012. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Ulrich Meyer, who is professor of psychology at the University of Oregon in Eugene. Go Ducks! (laughs) <laughs> uh, his work is concerned with behavioral flexibility and how we navigate task space. Hi, Ulrich. Hi. Hey. And around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. We've got Angelique Blackburn, who's a grad student here. Yes. Hi. And we've got Brian Derrick. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Selma Karashi. So um, I want to start again with one of my big general broad questions. I think it was last year we had... David Popel here, and he talks about what he calls the granularity mismatch problem between cognition and neuroscience mm-hmm. in tackling many of the same research issues. Yeah. So, um, so the idea is that the parts list and the two fields are so different that getting them and and the, that getting them to register will inevitably um, go far in moving both fields toward a common language for conceptualizing the mm-hmm. brain. And, uh, and behavior. So, your work seems to head in that direction. Just being that you're, you know, it's rare, we have very few cognitive, pure yeah. cognitive people come through. I thought this would be a great time for you to maybe um, comment on some of the framework that cognitive psychologists use to pose questions about the brain and behavior and where you can identify uh, some of the most promising points for alignment between psychology and neuroscience, mm-hmm. where you see those happening. Well, that's a great
1: question. I was been actually wondering about that while I was giving the talk, realizing after making my tour through the labs that everybody's working with single neurons here, whereas here come, here come I talking about tasks and, uh, you know mental states that usually last several seconds and, you know, what would be the correspondence between these levels? That's, you know, that that is a huge question. I do see my task um, really one as parsing uh, important real-world concepts like mental flexibility into manageable and functionally relevant components. Um, And um, I think it's really important that we get that right. Uh, I think that's, and if you actually sort of go through my papers, you can see that you can get a lot of mileage out of showing where others' attempts to get that right went wrong and trying to find the right boundary conditions, what exactly those behavioral phenomena that we look at mean and what they might represent. And um, with with regard to that the particular phenomenon we've been talking about, and which is, I guess I should repeat it here, the uh, the phenomenon of uh, switching between different mental sets, between different tasks, um, it is very, um, you know, there has been in my field in cognitive psychology a, a tendency to take certain behavioral measures, for example, the difference between switch and no switch uh, response times, to take that as as a face value, as something that Um, might indicate a time-limited operation like you like a really a switch that has to be pulled one way and that takes a certain amount of time and if your switch cost is 300 milliseconds then the conclusion might be well that takes about 300 milliseconds to do exactly that and part of what i'm trying to do is to say no this is not the right way of, of of looking at that this sort of does not do justice to the fact that our cognitive system is not made out of these little components where each one does one function. It's an emergent phenomenon of um, a system that tries to record information and makes that information available later in time, and that this system has to be controlled in some way. I think we are actually far away from really knowing how exactly these parts interact to produce these emergent phenomena, to produce these phenomena that I've been talking about. Um, And so, therefore, the, the question that you've asked me, what exactly is the right way to build the correspondence is really a very hard one at this point, um, but it doesn't it doesn't do us any good by just ignoring the problems, but by simplifying it by pretending that by you know having a little response times different score, we have a certain an, an operations. It's, it's simply not that that, that easy, um, and I th- you know part of the things that I've been trying to do is. Um, Think about how the different components, like working memory and long-term memory, how they have to interact with each other in order to produce the phenomena that I've been talking about. Um,
2: anyway, time is the common is the thing we have in common. Yes, and we can ask questions about, for example, in middle rotation. It just seems that it was very great that that the measure was time because it helped you or sort of think about the yes. actual process that was taking place yeah. yeah. and how long it takes yes. to do it. Yes. And so the, and we all measure these phenomena that evolve in time, mm-hmm. and we have some kind of notion about the time scale of brain mm-hmm. activity and how it changes. Yeah. So is, is that it? Is time our common foothold that we can use to synchronize ourselves?
1: Um, I think ty- you know time is the ba- that's I think that's why cognitive psychologists have been drawn to to time so much because it is something that can map across dimensions um, and you know we I think we have a pretty good idea of how um, how you know a certain number of synaptic transitions how much time each transition costs so I think you can actually end up at a. You know, some kind of building equivalences across these different levels in that way, but it's still, you know, we we are talking about somewhat different. Time frames, and there's a you know, there's there's a, uh, a magnitude, uh, there's more order of magnitude between the time frames that you guys are talking about and the order of magnitude that we uh, we are usually talking about. Um, the I want to just point out sort of another problem that I've been very seriously trying to get around in my domain is that um, typically, in order to get at meaningful response time measures. Um, you have to do a lot of averaging. So, for example, the switch cost difference or something like the Stroop effect. Um, it's always a different score between you know, a high demand condition, a low demand, a high conflict condition, or a low conflict condition. And in order to get this different score, you have to average um, across all these, these different events. There is no way to assess something like a switch cost on an individual trial. Um, or a, you know, a stroop effect on an individual trial it simply doesn't exist. It's not you can't can't oper- operationalize it, and I think in many cases it's actually really important to know what's going on on one particular trial in order to get at the dynamics that occur. And so I've been using in my most recently in my research eye movements, and uh, in order to get very precisely at whether, for example, you know attention is led astray or is doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing on a particular trial. So I know for a certain trial, even in the millisecond within a trial, where the, where the eyes are going. And that pre- gives a, very, a whole new level of you know, uh, resolution, both to assess exactly the dynamics within a trial. Um, so I can, for example, trace exactly the point in time when top-down control, given an implemented tax that takes hold But I can also use that to look at the dynamics that develops across different events. So to what degree, for example, does how the quality of my attentional setting on one trial predict how well I'm prepared for the next trial, and um, at least in my world, the there are important models that can be only assessed adequately with this kind of dynamic information. That's something I'm very excited about right now because it so actually the, goes beyond the level of response times. So um,
2: one of the things that, I mean, you said when talk, I, I, I keep getting yeah. flummoxed by this top-down control, but I can kind of picture what you mean in this case. So there's some distractor and the eye starts to move to that, but the the subject has been instructed. That's not the cue. Exactly.
1: And at some point, the eyes turn around and go yeah, back exactly. to the That's exactly what spot. happens. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and so, if you can measure that point in time precisely, and you know, one of the things that we find—not not just me, but other people have shown that—you know, when when you start looking at a scene and you have certain instructions, what to do, for the first two, three hundred milliseconds, your eyes are absolutely and only bottom-up driven. Um, only then gradually top-down control sets in and takes hold. And we can you know, measure that time and can see to what degree, for example, it depends on whether you have been switching, how much time you had to, uh, you had to prepare, and thereby we get a much more precise measurement of you know, how long does it really take to get top-down control in place and basically, so to speak, get the frontal, uh, the frontal instructions to your superior, collicular, you know, more automatic eye movement system. So how long is it? On the order of uh, hundred, so in my you know hundred about hundred twenty five milliseconds. It's really fast. Yeah, yeah
0: that's it's incredibly pretty, fast. Yeah. So, um, I, I know I know you, I, I introduced you by saying that you're concerned with flexibility, mental flexibility, but it's in, so in behavior stability. Um, is necessary, is yes. just as necessary, right? And it often comes at the cost of flexibility, yet, you know, they're yes. both absolute yes. requirements for navigating task space. So one solution to this is inhibition exactly. of the strategy, of the strategy right? And, um, and so you've been really rigorous in uh, identifying a, a sort of an operational index for, for inhibition mm-hmm. in your work. So... Um, most of us have a, have a grasp of inhibition at the level of the neuron. Yeah. Um, but could you talk to us about what cognitive scientists mean by inhibition generally, and maybe fill us in on some of the debate, because yes. I think there is a, it's pretty hotly yeah. debated, about uh, about inhibition's involvement in choosing and switching behaviors. Yes.
1: Um, yeah, you're exactly right. That. that was exactly why I was drawn to uh, this question, because I was interested in the stability, flexibility para, um, paradox. And so for me, it was always, um, I thought that inhibition could be a solution to that problem. It's like you know, you can only um, uh, dare to drive really fast with your car if you know that you also have a brake. Okay. And um, um, if you um, now, in 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 terms of cognitive psychology, the big question always was: Is there really something um, that makes? Representations temporarily less accessible um, in an active manner. Uh, and it can't be just sort of because you haven't thought about it for a while. Um, it really has to be an active process in response to competition. And that was extremely hard to show. I and mean, it's a little, would be a little abstract to try to explain why. But in most cases, you can come up with some kind of um, priming type. Interpretation of that same phenomenon, and in many times, many cases, it was actually shown in the end to be the right um, explanation. There's a paradigm called negative priming, which for a long time was supposed to be the gold standard. You know, the paradigm to assess back, um, ne- um, inhibition. You know, nobody believes that anymore because it has been shown that it's very. It's just just a memory phenomenon. Basically, every every most standard memory theories can explain it. Um, I, I think the one reason why this backward inhibition paradigm maybe I should quickly explain how it works is you know you have three different tasks you queue people to do. Um, you create sequences that sometimes you go from task A, to task B, while you go to task B, you inhibit A, and the next trial you go back to A, and you find that you're slower when you do that than when you go to a third possible task that has not been that you didn't have to disengage from uh, recently. And that difference, you know that additional little slowing, which is not very large, 20, 40, 50, 40 milliseconds, that is an index of this inhibition that is just lingering, that's still lingering on and I think one reason why we um, can protect ourselves from these sort of memory-based alternative explanations is because when we work with task sets, we have much more degrees of freedom in terms of manipulating stimulus parameters to make sh- and control these stimulus parameters to make sure that what we're seeing is not just some kind of mismatch, priming type effect of repeating or not repeating certain stimulus aspects. And, um, you know, I think I've done enough work now to convince myself that in most cases, this is actually not, you know, the it is it is really an inhibition type phenomenon. Now, would I be completely surprised if sometime time somebody would come up <laughs> with another alternative explanation that I haven't thought about? I've seen enough in this field that I, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't shoot myself. I mean, there are uh, stranger things that have happened. But for the time being, I think it's one of our closest, um, clear, most clear-cut cases of a behavioral-level phenomenon that might suggest inhibition. Now, does that necessarily mean that there is, you know, there is maybe some strengthening of inhibitory synapses on the neural level? I really don't know. I mean, there's something that I would be... Very curious to hear your input on what, whether there's sort of phenomenon on your level that it could explain something that lasts for that duration, and that would be behaviorally vis- visible, behaviorally visible um, in the way I see it in, in this paradigm. Everyone's oh. <laughs> <And
0: Brian. laughs> Definitely, you know,
2: fifty milliseconds is on the time scale of the most ordinary sorts of. Phenomena. This isn't just a. Um, this isn't just a, a lingering fatigue. No. Uh, this is. No. Because exactly. it won't happen if
1: you don't switch. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So. Um, so you know, um, just to be more concrete. I mean, we uh, I think we we know from monkey work that there are um, these sort of highly integrated. Uh, neurons that really represent task rules. Right. You know, Earl Miller's work, John Duncan has ver- uh, in, in Cambridge has done work of that kind. And so you could assume that there may be a process of actually making these neurons temporarily less accessible for a while after, you know, you've switched away from such from, from from the task represented by these neurons. So that's sort of a question whether there are, you know, on a physiological level, mechanisms in place that could do something like that, that can be triggered by an event like a task switch and that have sort of the kind of temporal characteristics of, you know, over a course of four or five seconds maybe Something less accessible in order to, you know, uh, pre- uh, prevent preservation.
2: So I thought Brian would say something about this, but if, but sometimes we think of um, brain processes as being represented by uh, oscillatory mechanisms in which cells are firing in some relation, phase relationship to each other, and the, and mechanisms like that destroy each other through lateral inhibitory processes and it takes a cycle I or two for, mm-hmm. things, to get for things to get going again and Think when we're talking about things on the order of 20 milliseconds it just sort of brings to mind or even up to 100 milliseconds <laughs> it brings to mind some of our favorite that gamma? periods gamma. of, of gamma. oscillatory activity in the brain
1: and So So, basically you're talking about a mechanism that would make it harder to get a a population of neurons entrained with each other. Is that what you... Yeah,
2: I guess the real, I mean, the question for us to answer, which we don't have the answer to, is, you know, what is a neuronal assembly that's performing a shared function in the brain? It's a question that we've asked ourselves a lot, and there have been many ideas about it, but it's... It's so uh, hard for us to test them. It, it seems to me yeah. that you know sometimes cognitive scientists complain that it's hard for them to test their ideas, but it seems to me you test your ideas much more easily than <laughs> we do. <did>, you, know? <laughs> I mean, you make up these like super penetrating experiments, you know, that that make that binary outcomes and. But anyway, the, the discovery of what uh, I could complain about my situation—I shouldn't do that. Yeah. But the, the discovery of what constitutes a neural assembly is a yeah. is like a fundamental requirement for us if we're going to yeah. to you know yeah. to try to answer the questions you raise. And one cool idea is that there are neurons that are sharing some common oscillatory mechanism, mm-hmm. but there are also older ideas that they're just neurons that are. Uh, in some kind of sustained activity that is some kind of an attractor. (laughs) And that in either case, it takes a while to to construct and to destroy those dynamic
1: structures.
3: And and then you're faced with the problem of, uh, presumably, these assemblies, in the hippocampus anyway, are within the same space. They're in the same population of neurons. Now, how one assembly could uh, uh, inhibit another or make the other mutually exclusive I have no idea how that would work. Mm-hmm. And, and inhibition would just is, is too widespread and not specific enough to allow that kind of thing to happen. Yes. So what is it selecting for the attractor yeah. becomes the issue.
2: So one that. of the things that's great about your work is that you put a lot of stock into that idea that working memory is, is doing one thing at a time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in that case, we can think of one set of neurons that have become entrained by one task, and now they have to they have to suppress that activity and, and then get captured by some other task yeah. and establish that one. Whereas inhibitory mechanisms usually involve multiple simultaneously active mm-hmm. neural structures that yeah. are somehow... Uh, inhibiting each
1: other. In a so so what if, What if, I mean, I, I, I completely agree, I mean, the problem is talking on the one hand of this widespread lateral inhibition where it's very hard to see how it could be specific to a particular thing that you're not supposed to be doing anymore. Um, whereas in cognitive psychologists often think about that, they think of this really targeted inhibition that somehow magically directly goes exactly to those assemblies right. that are supposed to do that. That's something that I always found very hard to believe how that should work. But I wonder whether there is sort of a a, could be sort of a compromise where, um, uh, in kind of a window take all network, you could let's assume one representation is really active, represented by one assembly, and then you need to push another assembly over and above that. Now, the one assembly that it needs to push down is, is sort of identified, by merely but simply by the fact that it's pretty active right now, and that then maybe sort of uh, all it needs to identify that as one that needs to receive extra inhibitory input in a fairly automatic manner. I'm not saying that there's magically something coming in now, a little homunculus, but just the way the lateral inhibition works, that the one that sticks out its head farthest gets, you know, banged the most. Tall poppy. Yeah so i mean that's that's the that's sort of the the closest i can come to come up with you know that might something that might actually work right and, and i would imagine that cognitive
3: psychologists would invoke <coughs> that sort of systems box like approach to this i would imagine that selecting the, uh, the what is not inhibited would be a frontal lobe kind of function but then you get to the idea of Again, if you think of the anatomy of the hippocampus, it's really pretty homogeneous. And presumably, uh, all of our recent memory and our working memory is contained in there, in the activity in there somewhere, Uh, (coughs) distributed in a distributed fashion. How would a discrete structure preserve a distributed ensemble with minus lateral language.
1: So I'm not thinking in the literal term. It becomes more difficult. So what about an alternative um, um, idea that I've sort of um, been sort of toying around with? And I mean, I think there is some reason to believe that, you know, I've I've talked in my talk at least a lot about, you know, how the important role of memory and, you know, the fact that at least some people believe that every selection event gets sort of as as a snapshot put down in memory. And that might very well, because are, these are very integrated representations, you know, you have the stimulus and the response and the context and the rule. So very likely this is something that is hippocampus-based. Um, and so what if what an, uh, a, a task switch does is eliminating a consolidation process that would go continue on for a, 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 an additional time and it's sort of the stopping of consolidation that shows up as inhibition rather than sort of some kind of active inhibitory process. Mm-hmm. That's sort of, you know, something we said. That's like a yeah. mm-hmm. cool idea. Okay. Oh, we're getting somewhere
0: here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to hand it over for a minute to Angelique, who's prepared a couple of things for us as so. well. So um,
3: maybe we can shift gears just a little bit. Uh, You've been researching also gender differences in competitiveness. So it's quite a a, a shift (laughs)
0: Um,
3: across the lifespan. And so um, from my understanding, uh, it's very intuitive that men are more competitive than women, which you've found across the lifespan. But you also uh, find that there are
1: particular differences at certain points in life.
3: Um, Can you maybe go into that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I feel like I should, I mean, I can't just switch from, yeah, <laughs> from the one to the other. <laughs> yeah, that's a major switch. Yeah, um, yeah I, do, I do actually do very different things that you, you might interpret as kind of as a research ADHD that I'm sure you're expressing <laughs> um, But I... A few years ago, I uh, got involved with a good friend as an economist, and we started sort of talking, and um, you know, found common sort of interests, and mainly through neuroimaging. He was he wanted to start neuroimaging as an economist. I was always interested in decision making, but wanted to do as, as rigorous as possible, and so that's how we got got together on this. Um, and the, the whole thing actually started out as work on altruism, and the the, the work on competition is sort of now a fallout of this. At. um you know the and this is not work where uh, we play sort of you're know, are major players at this point this is work that actually started by was started by a couple of economists um, mainly sort of as a kind of an as an after effect of the Larry Summers uh, uh kind of scandal when he suggested that women may not be as equipped for natural sciences because they're just not as good as math on a genetic basis. And some economists thought, well, that's one possibility. The other possibility is that women, because of a, whatever it may come from, a uh, bias towards uh, refraining from entering competitions, select themselves out of these types of jobs. You know these highly competitive jobs, and that this might be one explanation for you know the gender inequality. Uh, you know, let's say the often kind of the higher brackets of society that you're required, you require know, you to go to go through more competitions. You know, if you think about uh, you know entering career choices, becoming uh, running for office, all of these things require in the end running through intense competitions. And if you are if you get less. Um, reward out of doing that, um, then you may not end up getting these positions. And you know the basic paradigm, the behavioral paradigm, is very straightforward. You give people a little task. In our cases, it was a little math task, and you are allowed to do that for let's say two minutes, and you're told you get 50 cents for every problem you solve. Um, and now I give you a choice. You can do either that, that um, or you do the same thing but you get a dollar uh, per a problem if you are better than some opponent who's doing the same thing, or you get zero if you lose. Yeah. And when given that choice, men with overwhelming majority say, yes, let's go for it. And women say, at that point, say, oh, I'm, I'm happy with the 50 cents per, per, per item. And interestingly, this is basically, has basically zero correlation with actual ability. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, you, from an economist perspective, There's nothing wrong with that as long as the competition actually reflects competence. But if there's a disjunction between competence and uh, the willingness to enter competitions, then you get biases, and that's not what you want. Now, all that what we we have been involved in several projects. Uh, one of them simply looking at that across the lifespan. And you know, if you sort of, I think most people, me included, would have thought, you know, people young young men are really competitive, and then it gradually, as you know, cognitive kind of abilities wane, gradually you take yourself sort of out of the, the competitive pool. Um, but what we really found was um, we we replicated those gender differences so across the board men compete more than women but the uh, lifespan trajectory is a very strong peak at 50 and then it drops down um and I'm a little hesitant talking too much about it because at this point, it's a really interesting descriptive finding. We don't really have a good theory of why this is happening. Um, one idea would be that you know personality psychologists tell us that sort of this, uh, the importance of status increases as we grow older. You know, For a 40, 50-year-old, having attained a certain social status is really important, whereas a 25-year-old doesn't really think about these things that much, You know, thinks about other things. Um, so that it might it might reflect that, and then you know after fifty finally it dawns on you that you know you can't do anything you want anymore, and you sort of gradually sort of take yourself out of out of the picture. so that's my competition work. the other um you know really interesting part, and that's an unpublished but hopefully super soon to be published paper is where we show that uh, competitive choices uh, very dramatically depend on uh, menstrual cycle, so uh, women around um, the menses um, uh, those are the ones that really don't want to compete um, in other uh, phases of the cycle it's much more even between men and women so I'm suggesting there is some hormonal um, there's some hormonal influences to, the, to this
0: phenomenon sense.
1: having said that there is also a really cool study uh, by a group of economists using the same paradigm in India in in some never say that English word about matriarchal society. Yeah. Um, where really, you know, the men are the underdogs, and the women have to say, and there, the whole phenomenon is completely turned around. There's the men that don't want to compete, and the women do. Uh-huh. So it can't be just it can't can just be purely biological. There's some weird interaction going on. I do think this is really important work because uh, um, it's it's something that you can actually. Uh, play around with. So for example, one of the things we find is that the whole gender difference disappears as soon as you give women and men complete information about their own ranking and the other people's ranking. So if you know that um, you know you d- that's how well I'm doing and that's how well all those men are doing that you know think they can compete but actually are much number than I am uh-huh. and that the difference goes away which you know in some ways is not that surprising but it shows that you can actually the, the more transparent competitions are made, the more more rational choices you get and the sort of the irrationality and the ir- irrationality and the bias uh, goes away right. So fair. So- competition F- transparent that is, yeah. you know, that is, yeah. that is and that is transparent yeah
3: so does this then tie into risk-taking behavior
1: it, it, you know, I mean, the basic phenomenon of uh, either competing or not is very similar to what, the, what economists and psychologists usually do to measure risk. But you can't explain the phenomenon in terms of simply a, vo- a version of risk by itself. So we, that's always a control situation that you use. And that it does not show the same gender um, differences. That's, that's a very important point, but it's not the same thing, even though structurally it looks very similar.
2: Well, it seems to me that... Um, that if, as you said, once everybody knows their relative mm-hmm. ability compared to everybody else, the differences go away. Then it seems almost as though it is a risk issue. I mean, if I know I'm always going to win, of course I'm going to compete. No. If I know I'm always going to lose, of course I'm going to back. Um,
1: up. It's, no, it's 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 really not that simple because, um, if, for example, it, it looks like. Men generally don't care as much about um, their confidence, the confidence that that they will win. They simply want to compete. There is something intrinsically rewarding for men in terms of competing. It may be sort of um, the, 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 the fact that simply entering the competition is a signal of status. you know if, if, if I sort of refrain from if I tell you oh I'm not going to compete with you anyway that it basically shows at that point that mm-hmm. I don't think I'm, I'm up to the task. So men just don't want to do that. So even if they think they may, might lose, mm-hmm. you know, they don't want to reveal that uh, uh-huh. uh, they're not up to that com- that competition. So it's one of the things we find in you know in the, that lifespan study <laughs> is that women, in a way, are much more rational because okay. their compete choices actually are positively related to whether they think they're going to win the competition or not. In men, these are completely. T- the coupled issues you know they they 're really irrational in that regard for me, it looks like the big difference
3: is 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 who who is who is in power in terms of matriarchy versus patriarchy, and in our society, which is patriarchal we 're sort of
2: yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah.
3: men, men have had the... the, the,
2: the I've been unclear uh, so on that, I think, during my whole married life. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, well, well, that was a choice you made. I, I, I'm speaking about society in general, I guess, now. But, but we're, we're sort of pushed into competing. I didn't want to compete when I was younger. It's like running the race in the YMCA. I'm like, no, I don't want to do it. <laughs> so you get pushed into the race, and then you sort of develop a taste for it. You win a couple of times. It's that mm. variable interval type of reinforcement. Mm. And and so it's 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 we're expected to compete, and we're looked down upon if we don't compete, even if we're going yeah. to lose.
1: Well, I th- I, my my favorite, you know, my toy theory of what is going on with this is is, a, is, a, is somewhat related. Um, what I think is, you know, we all know there is a, a risk aversion in the lost um, uh, there's there's risk seeking in the lost domain. So if you fear that you might lose something. You go all, all out, and you are, in, in, are willing to engage in risk in order to avoid that. So let's say you are high status; you belong to a high status group, like men. Not competing is for you. Associated with losing, with mm-hmm. a certain loss of status, so that will make you risk seeking and more willing to engage in competition. Whereas for women, the framing is the other way around. You know, they are less. You know, they are they they, they don't have as much status. They could maybe get more status if they win. But we know that we are risk aversive in the winning domain. I mean, if I mean that's the old Kahneman and Tversky, uh, for which they for what they got the Nobel Prize. You know, we are risk seeking in the in the, when it comes to gains, so for them um, It means exactly that they're not going to compete in that situation. So that's I mean, that's the theory right now It's not proven, but I think that ties sort of risk and the sort of the status that would also explain why women in, why in matriarchal societies you get exactly the, the reverse finding because there are the women are the, the high-status animals Interesting
3: and. and Sort of related to this is something you had told me about altruism, which I have a hard time believing, <laughs> because I really don't believe I do anything that doesn't reward me somehow indirectly, but that's just me. Yeah.
1: But, but it, uh, if,
3: if you could sort of... Uh, this has to do with giving
1: things, I guess, yeah. and... So this is another uh, line of my work um, that also sort of you know, falls into the broad area of ne- neuroeconomics where Bill Harbour, the economist um, um, that I've been talking about and myself, we um, wanted to use neuroimaging to get at the question to what degree people give uh, what the motivations for giving are and sort of economists uh, distinguish traditionally between two reasons one is what they call warm glow or impure altruism and that means sort of giving giving because in the end, you hope that something good will come your way because of that, because you demonstrate good character to others, maybe even just to yourself. Um, but it's not so much in the end that somebody else is better off. It's in the end so that you are better off. Mm-hmm. And the other version, which is still completely square and fits with the, rational cho- the economist's rational choice model, is that by giving, um, you make somebody else better off. And you directly um, get an internal uh, subjective utility boost by that. No, so we're, you're we're kind we're. of your m- my utility is linked magically to your utility. When I see you better off, I feel better too. And so that is that's what they call pure altruism. It's still reward and utility based. It still can be explained by rational choice, but by assuming sort of this direct link is sort of kind of a magic little um, uh, a step they take. And so we wanted to distinguish between these two models. And the way we did that is we um, brought people in a situation where they simply watched on the screen transfers of money that went from a sort of a third party to a charity. And we recorded, you know, nucleus accumbens responses to that. We saw that, you know, a lot of people actually did have substantial. This is money
0: uh, that you've given to them, presumably. It's their money that they were watching. This uh, turns
1: out. We had those conditions too, but okay. in that situation, the money came from nowhere and went to the charity. So you were not even involved. You were just watching that. Like you were watching that, you know, after uh, an earthquake uh, catastrophe, you see that actually a lot of people are giving a lot of money. You, know? you but you're not involved. You're just watching that. Um, there were also situations where, from that, you know, obscure third-party money is coming your way, and all of that is real money. So this is—we are not just talking about play money here. This is real, and we get also the nuclear accumbens uh, response to that. And now we can um, compare the nuclear accumbens response for these two situations, um, and you know, for some people they respond actually stronger. To money going to the charity than to yourself. For others, it's exactly the other way around. And you know, the first we call altruists, the second we call egoists. In a different situation, um, we gave people a choice. You know, we showed them thirty dollars going from your pocket, and this was again real money to the charity. Are you okay with that? And you could say yes or no. So now it's it's an actual act of giving that you can either um, comply with or not. And what we find is that the degree to which we neurally classify people as either altruists or egoists, based on this sort of very passive situation, predicts how much people are willing to give. And that is, um, I mean, the, the reason why I think a lot of people thought that was exciting is because it was sort of a very strong test of this pure altruism idea. Because this is, you know, the situation where you just sit and watch and... You can't claim responsibility for that. It doesn't show your good character if the charity is better off in the end. It's, it really must have something to do with your reward uh, response to the fact that somebody else is better off that you think is deserving. Um, so that um, so was the first part, and I think you know it, it basically complied with the rational choice model, but it showed that one particular version of what why economists think that people might be giving is actually correct. Now, that doesn't mean that the other part, the warm glow, does not exist. In fact, we also had situations where people could sort of freely give. And in the free giving situation, the nucleus commons response was even stronger. So then you can claim responsibility. So both exist. But you know the existence proof of this, the pure altruistic given, that was sort of a, a strong point in that paper. Now, um, in the follow-up work, um, We wanted to go one step further. We wanted to sort of take that, but then ask sort of the even more far-reaching question that, you know, was actually initiated through an interview with the New York Times writer uh, John Tierney, who interviewed us after our paper. Um, In the scatter plot um, that showed the neural response predicting how much people give, there were actually a few people who neurally should be egoists, but actually gave a lot of money. And so he said, is that possible that these, these, there was two guys in the scatterblotting. said, is it possible that these two guys operate sort of in a Kantian manner? You know, Immanuel Kant said, you are only a true altruist if you hate it when you have to give, but you give anyway. <laughs> um, you know, those, those were the people who were sort of, um, neurally speaking, they didn't like it at all. But still, they ended up giving. Yes, it
0: has to hurt to um, <laughs> I
1: don't like it, but I do it. And so, basically, what we did, what we, and this is ongoing work, so I should I'm treating a little carefully now because I just I can only hope at this point that it's going to hold up. Um, you know, this is a study now with almost 100 subjects, and we're halfway through analyzing. So this is what we find in the first 50. Um, what we find is that we. Can replicate exactly sort of our the first part that you know neurally speaking we can predict through the nucleus error Cummins' response how much people give so the pure altruism part but then we a- assessed from each individual also what we call sort of the continent norms so these are questions like if somebody else is worse off than you, Um, It's a good thing to give no matter where they are sort of you know emphasizing sort of the universal aspects It's not just to close friends or something you see directly. It's just generally you are that's what you do and That the the degree to which you endorse these kind of statements is a very strong predictor of how much people actually give surprisingly strong and now the question you can ask (coughs) is to what degree does these endorsement of these norms does that work its way through the system by modulating sort of the nucleus accumbens reward areas? For example, if you are high in these norms, then your reward system uh, response might be particularly strong, um, or is there some other direct pathway to giving, more the Kantian way? And the answer is very clear so far, namely that it's the latter. It's, you know, the, these, these, uh, these norms predict giving in a way that has nothing to do with the nucleus accumbens response. These are really two ways in which giving can happen: through actually rational choice decision making, or simply because you think it's a good thing to give. And what we be, and you know, we, then we go one step further. We can see you know where in the brain are these content kind of norms? Can we find that place? And the first answer to that is nowhere to be seen. The brain, the brain is completely bland when you try to find. Areas that correlate with in that situation with the degree to which these uh, you you endorse these norms or not. But what you do find is that let's say you are somebody who um, is high on these norms. Every once in a while, you won't give, yeah, because there's some some little bit of choice involved here. Um, Whenever that happens you get the whole frontal lobe system lights up. Or the other way around, if you're somebody who, let's say you're somebody who never gives, who does not endorse these Kantian norms, but every once in a while you end up giving, the same thing happens. Then your whole frontal lobe system lights up. So what we believe is happening is that these Kantian norms are sort of the default mode that through lifelong learning you have established, you don't have to activate them anymore in sort of some Blood-consuming manner, you know, um, they're just sort of part of what you do. There is that's your routine behavior.
0: When you deviate,
1: and when see. you but when you deviate, <laughs> then it becomes sort of an issue. Then you have to sort of then your your brain has to get to work. And so probably what we're seeing here with these content norms is sort of the residue of previous. Decisions over a lifetime that have shaped you to be either somebody who you know complies with these kinds of norms or who couldn't care less and um, That will drive the most of the variance in this giving behavior and it's the deviations that actually uh, You know get your brain to work
3: Hmm. Yeah, I think there may be sort of a caveat in there and I was
1: thinking about this because altruism exists
3: in a number of species Mm -hmm. and we see it in species where uh, they don't reproduce, yet they <coughs> contribute to uh, the survival and the fitness of other offspring. Yeah. And so I'm thinking that this warm,
1: gooey feeling we might get from giving to people, even when it hurts, uh, uh, maybe... Actually, I uh, just want to interrupt you. There is no indication of warm, gooey feeling in those people who give, even though it hurts. Yeah. Even though, oh, okay, yeah, so their comments is sort yeah. of... Yeah.
3: Yeah, I could have guessed that. Okay,
1: (laughs) (laughs) and and I just want to point you know, it's you know, it's always tempting to go back to the animal kingdom and say, you know, there are all these animals who sort of behave altruistically, but you know, if you look very closely, I think there is very very little evidence of this type of spontaneous altruistic behavior yeah, to non kin yeah. um, you know even in, in primates i mean there's been a lot of work been done um, that shows that if anything these are very very rare occasions and you have to work very very hard to get that While if you take a one or two or three-year-old you can construct very simple situations where you immediately show Altruistic type, helping type behavior, um, in ver- even in very little kids, it's very easy to do. It really seems like you know we are equipped in principle to do that. Even our closest evolutionary relatives have a very very hard time doing that. So it's not that you can't get them to cooperate, but that's reciprocal. That's not altruism. You know, if you really want to want to have the sort of the real altruistic behavior, uh, very very hard to get in non-human primates. Right, I see. Okay.
0: Oh, so that's a couple of careers in one. Really, both all ends of the spectrum. ADHD. Yeah, we
1: right. covered.
0: A, I think we covered absolutely the most ground in this podcast. Uh, <laughs> the most, the <laughs> in our, we've covered the most ground in this podcast <laughs> in a while. and bottom up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and all of society. And um, thank you. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for being with us, Ulrich Meyer. This is Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs>